good morning. I've probably already said that once this morning to you all. Well, I was going to make a joke about, you're not going to believe it, but we are moving on this morning. Thank you. Yeah, you kind of ruined it. But it's all good. We really are moving on. We are moving on to our Father who art in heaven is the topic this morning. And uh, last week, Pastor Jade taught a great message on sonship. And he talked about the father heart of God. And uh, so first, let me just say that I have heard Pastor Jade over a number of years really talk about that subject. Um, But it seems like every time there's something new. Every time there's something fresh. And why is that? Because first, we are constantly growing and evolving, but also the Lord continually will reveal aspects of things that we maybe couldn't see before, blind, blind spots that we had, um, things that we weren't looking for, perhaps. So I would just encourage you, if you weren't here last week, if you would go listen to that message uh, from Pastor Jade. And that message, in particular, highlighted what we call, in uh, I'm about to get real theological here, Imminence, the imminence of God, which is simply the nearness of God. The fact that God is close to us, that he is intricately involved in our lives, that God is not um, what some would call a a deist God, which is what some of the early um, fathers of our country believe, that God created the earth, spun it into motion, and then basically takes a step back and kind of watches the earth. So this morning, we're going to talk about the other end of the spectrum of what Pastor Jade talked about last week. And that is that our God is a transcendent God. That our God is, he's, Jesus isn't our boyfriend, and he's not like Mr. Cool, like hang out with guy. That although Jesus loves us dearly, and reveals, perfectly reveals the Father, that he is like the pre-existent God of the universe. Right? Are y'all with me this morning? All right, thank you. I think you're... You're like, last time you were shouting me down, man. Sidron must have got all the shouts this morning. Man, I can't follow you no more. But okay, so anyways, this morning we are talking about um, our Father who art in heaven. And I I will say that this is a a difficult message, Um, not because it has negative implications for you all or for me, precisely the opposite. I believe that at the end of the day today, hopefully we will have a clearer picture of who God actually is. But talking about God using, uh, as a preacher I heard say one time, using puffs of air and symbols that we call letters is like next to impossible to do accurately and clearly. So if you would, pray for for grace for me this morning. And I'm going to pray before we jump into uh, the, the content of the message here, because I believe that this morning there may be a little bit of deconstructing work um, that the Lord will do. In other words, if you're like me, which in some ways we're all alike, uh, there are probably some things that you believe to be true about God that maybe need a shift, maybe need a subtle change. That's a, a really nice way of saying it. But perhaps you're like me and you need things blown up. So one or the other, maybe a combination of the two. I'm not really sure, but I want to pray for us before we jump in because I believe that the way this comes across and the tenderness of our hearts will really determine the outcome of this message. So Lord, we, we trust you this morning. We say that, Lord, we don't always understand you, but we do trust you. We live by faith 
And this morning we gather to worship you, to honor you, to dwell in your presence, but also to be formed by you into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that one day we will be ruling and reigning with Jesus here on the earth. And I pray that today that you would reveal a little bit more of yourself, God. I pray for the hearts of of myself and everyone under the sound of my voice, anyone who will hear this message later. God, I pray that the right things would be communicated and I pray that our hearts would be in in a place to receive, but from your Holy Spirit, not from me. God, I pray that you would make my words clear and uh, my thoughts concise. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this room even now as I know you already are. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So there are many things at work forming what we all believe to be true about God, right? There are scriptures that we know, messages we've heard, books we've read, conversations we've had, uh, experiences that we have all had and a host of other things. And these things all form who we are and who we think God is. So we don't just get our information about God from the Bible or from Jesus Christ. We're, we're observing general revelation and everything into our lives, whether, whether for right or for wrong, is or has the capacity, I should say, to shape what we believe to be true about God. And... Um, What we believe to be true about God is perhaps the most important thing in all of the world because it doesn't just shape the way that we look at God, it shapes the way that we look at our brother and our neighbor and ourself and our church and politics and our finances and all of our relationships. What we believe to be true about God affects pretty much every area of our lives. So what we believe to be true about God is of utmost importance, right? Are we on the same page so far? All right. The goal this morning is not to define God or even just discuss good proper theology, but rather to talk about God's nature in a way that will help us to pray well, which ultimately helps us to live well. So where do we get good theology? Scripture is the story of God and his people. Scripture, the Holy Bible, what we call the Bible, is not a textbook or an encyclopedia. And, we, and, and this is important, this is of utmost importance this morning because we can read the Bible and make it say just about anything that we want it to say. Remember, for hundreds of years, great Bible-believing Christians used the Bible to justify slavery. So that alone, and there are a host of other things that we could list, that alone tells you if you don't read the Bible in a faithful way, then very quickly we can get it twisted. I think too often we find ourselves going, well, it's in the Bible. Well, it's in the Bible. And of course, am I recommending that we toss out the Bible? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is the inspired word of God. I am simply insinuating that we have to read the Bible in a faithful way. And I I also think this, this is not on my notes, so this is slightly dangerous, Um, especially with a message like this, but I I think I can say this pretty clearly. I think when we are assessing things in the world, that the question of, is it in the Bible, is generally just a bad question. I think a better question is, does it point to Jesus? I think that's a much, much, much better question, 
okay? And, and that'll kind of play out here a little bit later in the message, uh, but I think it's very important. The Bible does reveal many things about God. Specifically in the Old Testament, God is, put, put yourself as best as we can, put ourselves in God's shoes. So God has the idea, I'm assuming, I mean, this is a little bit speculation, to create a world and to create humanity. But God also has the task of self-revelation, of basically explaining to humanity who he is. This is, I don't know if you've ever talked with another human being or not, but that's not always an easy thing to do, to communicate especially considering if you're God and you create them in the beginning, they have no context for God. There is, I just, I had a professor in, in um, Old Testament survey in my uh, seminary and he, he started the whole semester long class off with this little practice and said, okay, imagine that you are God. Okay, like I can actually do that, right? Imagine that you are God, wonderful, done, I've done it. Um, and you created people and you want to reveal yourself to them, but not just reveal yourself to them. You want to reveal yourself as accurately as possible, but also you don't want to literally scare them to death because if you're God, you could do that, right? You also uh, don't want them to misinterpret what you might would be saying or doing or whatever. So I say all of this and I paint this picture to say that when we read the Old Testament, there are right ways and wrong ways to read it. That when we read the Bible from the beginning all the way through to the end, we must read it as a story. This is the story of the ever-present, never-created, pre-existent God of the universe, the story of creation, the story of him uh, calling out a people and grafting them into the family and eventually giving his son as not only, uh, uh, what's the word here? I lost the word. Not only does Jesus die for our sins, is what I'm trying to say, but Jesus comes to perfectly reveal the Father. So when we read the Bible, we must have this proper context as opposed to just finding a verse in the Bible and saying, see, it says that right there. It says that right there. It must be absolutely true. It is true if it's in the Bible, but it might be true in a way different than you think it is. Um, so Jesus came not only to die for our sins. Yeah, you like how I just said that and moved right on. But, but also to reveal the Father's nature. If you picture, if your picture in your mind of the Father doesn't look like Jesus, then something in your picture is misinformed, okay? There are, there are theologies out there, and I, once again, I'm treading into dark territory here, but there are, there are theologies out there that seem to pin Jesus against God, and God, or Jesus is saving us from God. And I just want to say humbly this morning, and I'm going to do my best not to give us opinion, but to give as much truth as possible. That is not, the, that is not what we see revealed in Jesus Christ. And what we see revealed in Jesus Christ is what displays the nature and the character of God. Amen? All right. So here's a statement that I'm going to say multiple times throughout the sermon. I'm going to say it once first. And then I would like to invite us to repeat, call and response, if you will. God looks like Jesus. God, I'm going to say it once first. I'm so sorry. I'll be very, very clear. I'll say it once first because I want you to think about it. Then I want you to say it, okay? God looks like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We as people haven't always known this, but now we do. 
now we do. Okay, I want us to say this and then I'm gonna unpack it. So, God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. Let's wing it just a little bit. There's never been a time where God has not looked like Jesus. We got, y'all are amazing. We haven't always known this, but now we do. Give yourselves a hand. That was, oh my gosh. That is the most basic theology that will save your life. Amen. Awesome. All right, so here we go. We're going to jump right into the real meat of this message. And uh, we're going to talk about God's nature. God's nature. The first thing we're going to talk about is that God is immutable. Immutable. I-M-M-U-T-A-B-L-E. What does immutable mean? A very similar word is the word mutate. It means that God does not mutate. God does not change over time. God is the unchanging one. Do we all agree with this? This is classic orthodox theology from the beginning of time. However, it very easily gets twisted. What we mean by this is that God's character, his nature, and his purposes for the earth never change. But the way that he acts and interacts with creation may change. There's a very distinct line here that needs to be drawn, that the character and the nature and the purposes of God are never changing. In other words, God has always been good. God has always been love. God has always been merciful. God has always been compassionate. But the way that God interacts with you and with me and with creation in the universe may be different over, the, over time. One of the reasons for that is, like I said in the beginning, this is a story. And God is calling, he, he's going through the process of creating a people, calling out a people, revealing himself to a people. And as the people mature, the way that God relates to them also matures. So the reason that this is very important is because we have a tendency to look at a situation and go, God did this for that person. He's definitely going to do that again for me. And it doesn't always work that way. Once again, his character and his nature and his purposes for you, for me, and for humanity have never and will never change. That is what we mean when we say God is immutable. What we don't mean is that the way God interacts with us will always be the same. Y'all with me? Amen. When we pray, we stand on the conviction that God is who he says he is and not just that he will act how I've seen him act before. Okay? So what is this overall sermon series called? It's called Teach Us to Pray, right? Which implies that simply praying might not be enough. We need to pray well. Well, not meaning good or perfect, but in the manner that God designed us to pray, right? In other words, we relate to God the way that he designed us to relate to him. So when we say, teach us to pray, we are submitting everything that we know at the feet of the Lord and saying, Lord, would you sift out the things that might be a hindrance, might be misleading, might be a stumbling block, and would you transform or remove or implant or deconstruct or whatever work you need to do to make my prayer life better. Once again, better in the sense that more like he designed it to be, not just more how so-and-so says it should be. On the same page here? Awesome. 
So if we believe that God's character, his nature, and his purposes never change, then how can we be sure or how do we know what his character actually is? I'm so glad that you asked. Um, There is one very, very distinct person in all of humanity that perfectly displays the character, the nature of God. And who might that person be? His name would be Jesus. Yes, this is Sunday school and the answer to every question is Jesus. Who might that person be? Good, yay. Thank you for giving me a water break by saying Jesus. Everywhere that Jesus went, hope, life, healing, freedom, and the kingdom of God followed him. That is the essence of what God looks like. That is what we mean when we say the character and the nature of God never change. That means that God has always been good, that God has always been merciful, that God will always be and has always been faithful. The second point for this morning is that God is transcendent. God is transcendent, basically meaning that God transcends everything, that God transcends, he goes beyond, above, around, beneath. He totally transcends all that we know and all that we understand, which for us, finite human beings, is incredibly difficult to reconcile. But we must remember that we only exist because God thought us into and eventually spoke us into existence, right? The God that we serve is near, he is close, he is our father. He has given us the Holy Spirit as a guide, a helper, a comforter daily. But God the Father is the transcendent, preexistent God of the universe. And we cannot forget that. What happens when we forget that? I would like to submit that when we forget that, most of the time accidentally, right, that it, is, it becomes very easy for us to take his presence for granted, to begin coming to him however we desire, not how he asks for us to come to him, that very easily we can go, because God is full of grace and because God is full of mercy, I can, you fill in the blank, and end up justifying things. These are just a few, and I'm sure there are hundreds more, of reasons why it is important that we hold these things in tension. We can't get rid of the nearness of God. If we do that, then we lose the whole sonship message. We lose what it means to be a co-heir with Christ. But if we lose the transcendence of God, then we step into very, very dark, dangerous territory where we take the presence of God for granted. So God is transcendent. Like the phrase says, God who art, or our Father who art in heaven. Heaven is the place that God dwells. Heaven is an actual place. And by actual, I don't necessarily mean another physical place out there, but heaven is the place that God dwells. Heaven exists because God dwells there. Heaven is the place where the will of God, the kingdom of God, the government of God are fully alive and at work. That is where heaven is. So when we say heaven is all around us, in some sense, that's exactly what we mean. And I'm not going to get into eschatology at all here, but I just think it's important that we realize that God is actually dwelling somewhere and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. 
Not to be confused, I know this is getting very, very theological here, I understand. Not to be confused with the Holy Spirit that is right here dwelling in and among all of us. I know this gets a little bit convoluted and, and confusing maybe, but the bigger overarching picture is that there is a God who created a heaven as his home to live in. <clears throat> and while God is our father, we are made in his image. We are not of the same essence of God, okay? So I want to just bring a little bit of clar- clarification to something. There is this phrase, the Latin phrase, imagio Dei which means that we are made in the image of God. Basically meaning when we are fully and perfectly human like Jesus, that we reflect the image of God. That's what that means. But our essence is not the same. Our essence is not the same. Are we, we're on the same page here? Man, you guys are like, man, I, thought, I didn't sign up for Systematic Theology 101, but I promise you here in about five minutes, this is gonna get super practical, okay? The next point is that God is not utilitarian, meaning that God is not functional or designed for our usefulness. Well, for one, God has not been designed because he is preexistent, but God is not God to be useful to you and me. I'm gonna say that, let that, let that sink in. Does that mean that God doesn't do things for us? No. Absolutely not. Without his breath in our lungs, as we sing all the time, we would simply cease to exist. But so here's this thought. At the time that the Ten Commandments were given, the only religion around was not Judaism. There were many, many, many other polytheistic religions among the people of those days. And polytheistic simply means that they had many, many gods, that there were other gods. So what kind of gods did they have? I'm sure we're all familiar with some. They had sun gods, rain gods, uh, fertility gods, gods of war. They would have all these gods according to what? What they needed. This This is how polytheistic religions work. They have gods according to what they need. So part of what the Ten Commandments is doing is in the first three commandments, God is saying, I am not a God that is useful or functional to you. In other words, you don't just worship me to get what you want. There will be no other gods before me. I'm not like all these other polytheistic religions. And just a side note here, the last five of the Ten Commandments are all about the same thing with your neighbor, meaning your neighbor is not for your usefulness. Yeah? Your neighbor does not exist to serve a function for you. Your neighbor does not exist so that you can climb some kind of totem pole, whatever that is. And the minute that we do that, look what happens. Greed, hatred, anger, murder. The Lord told us thousands of years ago, I am not designed for a, or I do not exist to be functional to you, but I am the preexistent God and I deserve to be worshiped because I am that God and because I created you. We have to be careful we have to be careful, not fearful. Fearful is not, not the, what, what we're proposing this morning. But we must be careful that we never become so comfortable with the presence of God that we simply intrude however we want to do so. Scripture says that we come boldly before the throne of grace. We have confidence before the Lord. But we only have confidence because he not only gave us everything we need, but he also empowered us to be able to receive it. We do realize that without the power of God, we are all helpless creatures. 
We need the transcendence of God. We need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded that God does not serve a purpose for us. But here's the beautiful thing. When we do worship him with clean hands and a pure heart, then we are, I gotta be careful how I say this, but at that point, we are in the best shape of any place in the world. There's a a saying, I forget, I think Billy Graham said it, but the safest place to be is in the will of God. And that doesn't mean safe in the sense that nothing bad will happen to you. It means safe as in whatever happens at the end of the day, the God that we serve is the pre-existing God. He's not like those other gods. Remember those first three commandments? There will be no other gods before me. Do not take my name in vain. Do you know what that actually means? It doesn't mean don't say four-letter words, although that's generally not good either. What that means is don't say things and put my name on them if they don't really mean what I intended them to mean. In other words, don't say whatever you want and give a political spiel or whatever and then stamp in Jesus' name on the end of it. That is what it is to take the name of the Lord our God in vain, okay? I don't even know why I said that. Because it's good. Thank you, pastors. Thank you, pastors. The the podcast needed it. (laughs) I'm preaching to the choir this morning. This is awesome. There is a story that I heard uh, from Bill Johnson in a message. And he, he talks about his father died just a few years ago. And it was not a good situation. I don't even know what it was. But he was in the hospital for a little bit of a lengthy period of time. And as soon as his father passed away, the first thing he did was, I believe he went to the chapel there in the hospital and he chose, he said, I made a conscious decision to worship God in the midst of the darkest pain I had ever seen in my life. And the reason I chose to do that, I'm I'm speaking as Bill at the moment, but I, I chose to do that at that moment because I knew that as far as I had had in my life, that there had never been an opportunity where it would have been as easy to turn on God, which means that by worshiping him, I gave him the most valuable and costly praise I could ever have given him. When difficult things come, which is where we're gonna head here in just a moment, when difficult things come, we need to still worship God. We must still worship God. I actually believe It is better for us in our Christian formation, in who we are becoming in character and the likeness of Christ. It's actually better for us to worship God when things are not going the way that we want them to go. Because when we worship God only when things are going the way that we want them to go, what are we training our body to do? We're training our body to praise God when things go well, but then what about when things don't go well? All right, point number three, and the final point here is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And I'm, I'm gonna elaborate on this one quite a bit. We're gonna spend some time here. And uh, I, I just wanna prep you. There is something uh, that I'm gonna say here in just a minute that might come off and sound a little bit radical. But I promise you, first and foremost, I ran it by Pastor Jade, okay? The second thing is, if let's hear this out together. Let's walk this out together and let's give it just a shot to make sense in our minds before we go, I've heard that all my life. There's no way that can be true. And that is 
that what God, what sovereignty does not mean is that God is in control, okay? So let me bring some clarification to this. What sovereignty means is that when God does everything he can do as the all-powerful God of the universe at the end of time, that every wrong that has ever been done will made right, will be made right. And what, what, there is one place in history where we have seen this, and this is in the life of Jesus. This is in the life of Jesus. So Jesus has the worst thing ever done to him. He is crucified by people, and he is the only innocent man to have ever lived. So what does it look like for God to make something right? Well, it looks like Jesus being resurrected, which means that God didn't take it back, that it never happened, that God didn't sweep it under the rug and just give an apology, that God didn't send Jesus a gift, uh, you know, lots of money and lots of children or whatever, like we often picture in the story of Job, where he just multiplies everything that he had. He didn't do that. What did he do for Jesus? He allowed Jesus to pass through death, the most horrific death that anyone has ever experienced, and come out on the other side resurrected with an eternal glorified body. That is what it looks like when God does everything he can do. So let me read this again about sovereignty. What does it mean when we say God is sovereign? It means that we believe God holds all power in his hands, but that at every moment, God is not choosing to utilize all of that power. For if he did, there would be no evil, there would be no death, there would be no sin in the world. And what we are not saying is that the finished work of Christ is not enough. Jesus initiated and inaugurated a process that we are now living in the tension of this kingdom working itself out on the earth. Thank you. So let's get back to this control thing here for a minute because I don't want to leave anyone confused except perhaps myself. I'm not sure about that. I grew up associating sovereignty with control. And until very recently, I was probably just like many of you. And if I had heard this, I would go, that's completely untrue. We believe that God is the all-powerful God of the universe, which we do believe. But what does it mean? Let's think about the implications of what control actually means. Because control implies asserting one's will over another one's will. So if I control my wife, if I am being controlling, which by the way, is that term ever used positively? No, it is not. As far as I can remember, that is never used positively. If I am controlling my wife, then what that basically means is I'm usurping her will and putting my will on her which we believe that is not the way that God is running the universe. God is not a master puppeteer in the background pulling all the strings, making everything happen. If we believe that, then God is directly responsible for the evil in the world, which this is an age-old question with thousands of books written on it. So this is nothing new. This is, this is really not new. This has actually been the faith of many, many, many of our fathers. We just haven't heard it. Because generally when we say God is in control, what are we doing? Most of the time, something negative has just happened to either us or someone we love or someone we know, right? And we're grasping for an anchor. 
we're grasping for some kind of stabilization. We talked a little bit earlier, or we sang, we didn't talk about it, we sang about it, the song that Jesus is our cornerstone. And this is, in a sense, what we mean is when things in the world are are shaken and we don't really know which way is up, what we can't do is go, God is in control, he must be doing it. God is not necessarily in control, God is also not not in control, meaning that God, yeah, you're going to love this, right? You're going to love this. I promise we're going to bring more clarification. Meaning that God is not at the mercy of what happens in the world, but God is also not a master puppeteer pulling the strings. What is God in this? Well, in this time, it looks like Romans 8.28, where God is working and weaving his way in and out of the things that happen to us and happen in our universe. And he is somehow, some way, it doesn't say initiating things, but it says working things together for our good. That is what God is doing. Does God act today in this time? Does God act? Absolutely God acts. Has God acted in history? Absolutely. Is God finished acting? No, absolutely not. So we are not denying that the Lord is in our midst and and is present with us and is near us in times of difficulty and struggle. But what we cannot say is that the Lord is controlling situations, which we would almost never say it that way. If you think about it, we would never say God is controlling, but we do say God is in control. God has a relationship with humanity and with all of creation unlike any other relationship in the world. See, we use the term control because humans can use that term with one another. We can use that, but God has the only truly unique relationship in the whole world with each and every one of us and with his people as a whole. Which is why we can say with certainty that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign, meaning that God has all power in his hands and God has acted in the past, God is still acting now, and God is one day going to act in fullness. In other words, God has been God, but God has not been God in the fullness of what he can do every moment. But there is coming a day, and you know where this leads, right? There is coming a day where God will be God in fullness, and death will no longer be where sin will no longer be, and everyone in the world will know by sight what we now believe by faith. This is what it means to live by faith, to believe that God is good, like Sidron said earlier, to believe that God is good even when things aren't going well. How are we able to say that? We're able to say that through faith, anchoring God is good to what we've seen in Jesus Christ, saying Jesus Christ is good. Jesus Christ is what it looks like when God does all that God can do where everywhere that Jesus went, there was healing, there was life, there was freedom, there was hope, there was joy, there was peace, there was resurrection. When God does all that he can do, it looks like Jesus. And here's something else that I don't know if we've thought of. Every gift and blessing that God has given to Jesus, he intends for us because we are co-heirs with Christ, meaning that everything God has done for Jesus He will do for us. Some of it has already been done. Some of it is yet to have been done. Meaning that in the meantime, we live by faith. Thank you. 
We are living in the meantime before God fully does all that God can do. And in this meantime, we are formed into Christ's likeness through suffering. This is where it's going to get a little more practical for us. There are also many scriptures, uh, or, or there are scriptures that claim that God is <clears throat> the utmost authority and has all power in his hands. And yet there are also scriptures where it seems like part of the, the core message that Paul preached was that in this present world, you will have suffering. I mean, you cannot read the epistles and not hear that in, Saul's, in Paul's voice, much less just read his story. He goes on a list at one point and talks about all the difficulty he has, uh, he has gone through. So I'd like us to turn in our Bibles. Yet we are going to use our Bibles this morning. We've got a bunch of verses here coming up. To 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. By the way, almost the whole book of 1 Peter is about suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21. I believe she has it in the back. To this you were called... Because Christ suffered for you, period. No, that's not necessarily correct. Comma, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. I don't know about you, but that is not my favorite verse in all of scripture. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Let's also go ahead and turn over to Philippians 3.10. Philippians 3.10, this is a verse that many of you will know. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, period. No, there's no period there. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that we will get all that God intended for Jesus, which is, includes suffering and resurrection. The problem is you can't have resurrection without death. You can't have resurrection without death. This is something that I do not like. Let me just tell you, I really don't like this. Until pretty recently, I'll be honest, I had had a very, very, very simple life, a very good life, a very, what we would use the term blessed to refer to. I had a very, very, very blessed life and still do in pretty much every way. But seven months ago, for, most, for some of you that don't know, Bonnie and I lost our uh, first son and then had a miscarriage a few months ago. This is not easy stuff to reconcile. I mean, I, if we went around the room how many people in this room have just had horrific things happen to them? Wicked things in the earth. And I want to make one thing extremely clear this morning. We are not saying that God causes things to happen to you so that you will suffer so you can look like Jesus. That is not in any way, shape, or form what the Bible teaches us or what Jesus himself taught us. What the Bible does show us is that there are unfortunate things that happen, and then there are straight up evil and wicked things that happen. And God has a way, a sovereign way, of weaving himself into and working in these situations to form Christ-like character in you and me. Because what is the ultimate goal here? What is the ultimate goal? Is the ultimate goal to get through life the way we want to get through life? 
No. The ultimate goal is for the body of Christ to look like the head who is Jesus Christ so that we are prepared to rule and reign with him forever. This is the ultimate goal, is to look like Jesus, to be formed and chiseled and transformed and for us to continually be looking more like Jesus Christ. And unfortunately for us, I shouldn't say unfortunately because in hindsight, we'll probably look back and go, my God, how did he do that? But suffering is just a part of this process, a very, very unfortunate part of this process that we will share in the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in this meantime, we share also in his sufferings. And both are ways that we are formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I love this, uh, this verse here in 1 Corinthians 2.9. This is our hope. For no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart has imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love him. How do we get through the meantime? How do we get through the meantime? How do we use these things that we have learned today about the nature of God to help us pray well and ultimately live well? Well, for one, we learn to live by faith, and two, we learn to live with hope. We live by faith and we live with hope. Because what Paul says here in this verse is, guys, it is difficult right now but no eye has seen and no ear has heard and your heart has not even imagined all of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. This is our hope. This is our hope. If, if our faith, if Jesus' life ended on Good Friday, we have none of this. We have none of this. But Jesus' life didn't end on Good Friday, did it? Come on, we are approaching Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what gives hope and allows for faith to make all of this even make sense and possible. Because what you and I truly believe is the sovereignty of God means that one day he's going to make every wrong right. I don't know how God's going to do that. I'm not God. You don't know how God's going to do that because you're not God. But one day God's not just going to say sorry He's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's not going to make you forget that it happened. He's going to somehow, in a sovereign way, make it right. And this is what we believe as Christians. This is, this is part of the core of our faith. This is what it is to have hope. Not that bad things won't happen to us, but that there is coming a greater good because God is like Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross willingly absorbing the sins of all of humanity into himself rather than doing what was right for him to do or what could have been right for him to do, which was to call down thousands of angels and destroy all of those people. But God didn't do that. Why? Because he is right. He is good. He is good. And he loves you and I more than we could ever imagine. Another passage, just if you want to read it, I'm going to skip over it right now. Revelation chapter 21, three through five. And it says, now the dwelling of God is with man and he, he will live with them. They will be his people and God will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order has passed away. Behold, I am making everything new. This is just another passage that elaborates a little bit on what our future hope looks like. So how are we to live in the meantime? Romans 5.3 says, But we also rejoice in our sufferings 
Because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. I'll read it one more time because it's important. But we also rejoice in our present sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Hope trusts that God's character will prevail when we are, and we will have all that is rightfully ours as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Hope believes that every blessing meant for Jesus will eventually be ours as well. We are living in this tension now of God's initiated work and God's completed work. We can all agree with that. If we don't agree with that, then why would we be praying later in just a couple of weeks, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? When Jesus also says that the kingdom of God is at hand, we are living in this tension where the kingdom of God is present and with us, just not quite yet in fullness. This is what it is to live by hope. We trust that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That one day, as Hebrews says, everything will be under the feet of humanity. And it also says, we have not yet seen this day, but it is coming. I believe it's in Hebrews chapter 2, I believe. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see through a glass darkly or dimly, but then one day we will see face to face. For now we know in part, then we will know fully. One of the things that I believe this means, and I'm going to make this very clear that this is now opinion, I believe that sometimes when we're asking God for answers, sometimes that is, that is an invitation and God wants us to press in and God wants us to push into his heart. I also believe that there are some things that even if God showed us on the other side of that glass, we're still looking through a glass darkly. And even if he showed it to us, we wouldn't understand. We wouldn't know. It wouldn't make us feel the way we think it is going to feel. And the only way to know the difference is to press into the Lord. The only way to know is to press in and trust that if it needs to be revealed, he will do it. And if it doesn't, it's probably for our good. Amen? So, in conclusion, here we go. When we pray, we pray fully believing that God is a good God that he is sovereign, that he is immutable, never changing, and that he is the transcendent God of the universe, which means that he will do eventually all that he says he will do, leaving out nothing. How do we know that God can be trusted? And as we've already said, we see this in one man's life. And who is that man? Was God faithful to Jesus? Did God leave Jesus in the tomb? He did not. He brought resurrection after what seemed to be the worst thing that could ever happen, God chose to bring resurrection. And as a, uh, there's a pastor named Brian Zahn that has this saying that I love, that I want us to end with, and then we're going to stand and we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer with these things in mind together. And he says, in Jesus, no story is left a tragedy. In Jesus, no story is left a tragedy. Tragic things will happen. God is not causing them. He will be near. He will work in the midst of them. And one day he will make everything right. If you would, please stand with me. Please stand. Thank you for paying great attention during a very theological sermon. We're going to pray this. Oh, thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. I'd like us, if we could, can we get the, uh, the Lord's Prayer? Let's pray this together with this in mind. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Here, Pastor Jade. It was just outstanding, outstanding. <clears throat> I'd like to, um, I'd like to wrap this up today and just give us a little direction here on one of the ways that we can partner with this. There's a lot of ways that we can partner with this. In fact, when when Jonathan and I were dialoguing, one of the things that we came to the conclusion of was, whenever you're talking about the character and the nature of God, how do you how do you address that in one? simple message we're talking about the uncreated God of eternity one of the things I'd like to propose to you this morning as it relates to how God is forming us as a people last year um, we experienced some hits as a body as a family as a church community and like anything when we experience difficult things as humans it causes us to look for answers and that's natural and we shouldn't, um, we, we shouldn't be ashamed, nor should we avoid the process of searching for answers. I said this to a friend of mine, I'm comfortable with you overturning every stone in the process of trying to make sense of this. What is dangerous is when we come to conclusions prematurely and we label something as something that is that may not be something that truly is that being said in the midst of our very real pain as a family and as a community I'd like to assert and I'd like to submit today that I feel like one of the things that God is building into us as a people and I think it's because of our history I think it's because of the different streams that this house is composed of I feel like God is saying in 2016 and perhaps beyond, I want to teach you a little bit more about your theology of me as it relates particularly to your theology of sin, suffering, sickness, and death. Because those aren't things that we, we hear very much as charismatics or as however we want to define ourselves as a people. Those, those aren't messages that we hear very much of. And, and I have a thought here. I, th I don't think we like hearing about suffering because secretly we are afraid. And, and, and you see that happen, the way that people respond to a negative report or the, the possibility of a negative or a bad outcome. And we either deny it or we, we over-faith it. And I think because secretly we are deeply, deeply afraid. We are afraid. And interestingly enough, in this transcendent, imminent tension, God says that perfect love is the thing that will actually drive that fear away. 
so I think that there are some of us in here today that actually, we actually have a problem with God and we are in need of forgiving God and we are in need of forgiving God not because God has betrayed us. I wanna make this very clear. But based on everything Jonathan said today and more, we have adopted a view of God that is inconsistent with who God really is based on our fear of pain and suffering. So we have created this, now we're back to what Dennis preached on in our anthropomorphism, which is we have formed God into a being that we need him to be for us, not a God who is actually God in himself. And, and, and we use scriptures and we, and we speak words of faith. And I know there's a huge tension here between the sovereignty of God and the dominion of man and the authority of man. But if we were really honest with ourselves, there's something inside of us that feels like God let us down because God did not act consistent with the God that we have created in our minds that he should be. So I'd like for us to do this this morning. And there might be some of you in this room that do not need this. But I'd actually like for us, I'd like to walk us through a prayer, a healing prayer, where we humbly submit our view of God back to God and that we, we forgive God for any anger and animosity that we might have misdirected towards Him because of something that we have created in ourselves. And then I'd like to invite you as a family to join us in this humble journey this year because and beyond because the tragedies and the unfortunate situations that we have walked through last year will not be the only ones that we walk through as a people and dare I say that not all of those things are the devil again I think in our fear we, we, we need to have a culprit and sometimes the culprit is not God and it's not the devil and sometimes the culprit is not even us. Sometimes the culprit is life in this fallen ecosystem that God has invaded and says, I will walk with you in the midst of this sin-stained, sin-soaked, cursed, fallen environment. I will be near and my promise is I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you and when I'm done being who I can fully be it will be good and it will be right so don't fear let's pray together Father I just humbly I just humbly come before you today realizing and recognizing that a lot of the paradigms that I've built up some of those paradigms Lord may be inconsistent with who you are Father I thank you that in your perfect wisdom you actually use things that I don't like and that I don't understand to actually reveal who you are accurately if I'll let you and so today, Lord, I just stand as a representative of this spiritual family and we come together right now corporately. 
And we say to you, Almighty God, who is good and perfect and transcendent and all-powerful and all-knowing and yet close and caring and comforting and Father, all in perfect, holistic balance. Father, we say that in any way that we have created an image of you that is inconsistent with who you are, and as such, we've made demands or we have created expectations for you to do things now in our timing or for you to do things in our way. Father, we just repent of that today. And Father, we, as, as awkward as this may sound, guys, or as awkward as this may feel, Father, we forgive you. But really what we're doing is we are releasing and we are asking for grace for you to penetrate where our view of you is inconsistent with who you really are. So Holy Spirit, as you are the former of us as a people, would you elevate our theology? And would you elevate our view of who you are? God, would you continue to release a supernatural grace as every one of us walk through and participate in the fellowship of your suffering in our own unique and relative way and as we walk through that as a body to your glory and to your name. We trust you and we praise you in Jesus' name. God bless you, Antioch as we continue to walk on this journey, moving towards Easter and resurrection, um, I'm praying that God would encounter every single one of us in new ways and continue even to address paradigms of who Jesus is and who God is in a way that allows us to interact with him afresh and anew. Walk in victory and walk in peace this week in Jesus' name, amen.